There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes and questions to reflect on what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes, the verses, the questions, uh, the announcements, everything that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? It's Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14, and it says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. That means meaningless or vapor. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us, again, what it means to be a people who trust and love you. That when we see things in the world around us that we don't understand, we would still trust in your sovereignty and your grace. And as you lead us and guide us, we'd be the people that would walk in that leading and guiding, and that we would simply begin to love you because you have first loved us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is Ecclesiastes week 23. We got about nine weeks after this, and then we're going to finish it up, so... You're not close. We've got a ways to go. Uh, we're going to talk today about how God stands over our meaninglessness, but really almost in a different sort of way. Ecclesiastes is a book that looks at how the wisest man in the world, other than Jesus, does reflection on all the things and wrong ways that he lived in his life, coming to the point that God following him is the only true way to live. This word gets repeated a lot in Ecclesiastes, this word for vanity. It's also again translated as meaningless or vapor. Vapor is almost the best word for it because it's almost like this idea of on a cold morning you breathe out and you see your breath but it's instantly gone that's what he's talking about it's about all these ways of things that we run after that are so temporary and fleeting yet we think are going to fulfill our lives but they never ever do because anything other than a relationship with the living God is never going to bring us what we were made for it's never going to bring us to where we are supposed to be so Solomon keeps back coming back to this idea of what we build with our hands under the sun is like vapor and only life with him is going to last. He will start to also talk about how it's impossible for us to know all of God's ways and all that he is doing because he is so much higher than we are. And so we trust God for what he has revealed and follow him in the hard times even when we don't understand. Now right before he gets to the verses we talk about today, Solomon will talk about how the wicked do not properly fear God. And this is going to kind of be where we go today. We're going to talk about the proper fear of God and what that means. I know your favorite topic to talk about in church, fear of God, right? It, 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 I get it. Our culture has a hard time talking about fear anywhere related to our idea of God. And that's, be, and that's why we typically, as a culture, try and make God in our own image. God has to react this way. God has to respond this way. God is supposed to do these things. And that sort of God always lets us down because we're really just worshiping ourselves and we let ourselves down all the time. And so what God has to do is reveal himself to us. God made us in such a way that our hearts, our souls, our spirits were made to be in relationship with Him. And anything other than Him is never going to fill it. It, God has shown us in His majesty and His revelation, His integrity and purity and love and compassion, the justice of who He is. That is what our lives are meant to be shaped upon. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says that the solution in our lives to all the things we're running after is not just to, quote-unquote, keep the commandments of God. He will say it's to fear God in the right way, and that will actually lead to the place where we live in God's ways in our lives. 
So let me explain this. The Bible uh, uses a couple different words for the word for fear. In 1 John 4.18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So that means there is a fear that is the fear of being hurt. A fear of being hurt is a self-centered type of fear. We're worried about what's going to happen to me, how this thing is going to affect me, how the coming election in 2020 is going to affect me. That's all a lot of fear. And that, that is one of the ways that fear is used in the Bible, but it says we don't need to fear like that when we properly fear God. Uh, there is a proper fear of God that is actually some completely different than that type of fear. It's also different in what it will bring about in our lives. In Proverbs 28 verse 14, it says this, Blessed is the one that fears the Lord always. Now the King James Version will translate that word blessed as the word happy. Happy is the one who fears the Lord always. Always. It's almost like it says, you know, the more you fear God, the happier you're going to be. Well, that's a different kind of understanding of the word of fear a little bit, right? Psalm 130 verse 4 says, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And that sounds strange. And that's because we don't really understand the fear of God at all. When the Bible talks about this idea of fearing before God, it's this inner state and condition of awe and amazement of not only God's greatness and His goodness, but also how He has loved and rescued us. Where we understand His love his power greatness, but also his love for us. And when we understand the fear of God correctly, the gospel correctly, it begins to make us a humble people. We actually begin to be a people who are not so concerned about what other people say, because we're not fearing what they say, because we live in the proper fear of God. We're not worried about people who are offensive all the time, because we realize that we ourselves, in our lives, have been offensive, and many times we are offensive before God Almighty, and yet God loves us and calls us back to himself. It's this inner condition of awe and respect, of fear and trembling, of amazement, again, before not only the power and holiness of God, but also the love and mercy of God and how they go hand in hand. The fear of God, not the fear of being hurt, works exactly the opposite of the ways of most of our fears do today. The fear of God helps us to forget ourselves and our own fears. Again, it makes God look so huge in our eyes, so glorious and wonderful in a sense that we are undone by the magnitude of who He is and the greatness of His glory, that our eyes move from ourselves and on to Him. And finally, we're free. Finally, we get to live in joy. Psalm uh, Psalm 19 verse 9 says this, The fear of the Lord is clean. I mean, that is just an amazing way to say that. It's clean. It's as if when people properly fear God and His love and grace, it so repositions our hearts and our minds and our thoughts that we cease to dwell on ourselves and on our own sins. When we stand in fear of His wisdom and power, the troubles and little things go away. When we understand His adoption and His care for who we are, again, that criticisms and insults of other people, they become little. And that's really the joy that comes from the real fear of God. And I don't know if it's making sense, but I want to walk you through some stuff because Solomon, throughout Ecclesiastes, he has been practical, he's been philosophical, he's been theological, and today I think he kind of hits every single one of those buttons in what he talks about. I've had someone say, like, I don't understand how you get half the things you do out of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's because I read a ton of commentaries, and I'm trying to throw this all together. So Solomon's kind of over the map a little bit today. Or maybe just I am. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But this is where we're going to go. We're going to talk about that and how we respond in real obedience to who he is. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. 
Uh, as you do, think about this. Uh, think about something like the Ten Commandments, right? You know, the Ten Commandments were given to the Israelites at this place called Sinai. God didn't give them to them when they were in Egypt and when they were in slavery. God calls his people out into this place of freedom, and then he gives them to them there because God called them to be free. At Sinai, he will give them a mission and an identity. This means that God doesn't go to the Israelites in Egypt and say, follow all my commands and then I will save you. It means that God said, trust me, love me, follow me because I have already saved you. That's what Sinai is. And there are really in our lives only two ways to obey God. The first way is I'm going to obey God so he, so he will accept me. And this is the idea that i got to do the right thing, say the right thing, so God will actually love me. That's, that's not what Christianity ever teaches. The other way is what Christianity teaches, and this is I'm going to obey God because through Jesus and what he did, God has already accepted me. God has already called me and brought me in. In one case, the obedience means your salvation. I'll do all the right things. I'll become my own savior. And the other side, we obey because we want to know and love and please our God who has already rescued us. We want to become like him. And they're two completely different motives. One is out of fear of being hurt, and the other is out of a proper fear and reverence of God and, his, and being in awe of his grace and his goodness. Two people can actually look in the scriptures and read the exact same verses and see commandments of God, but there'll be two two different motives, and there'll be two different experiences, and in the end, there'll be really two different lives. Ecclesiastes 8.13, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. That's where he left off last week, and then out of that, he directly goes into this, Ecclesiastes 8.14 and 15, there is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So he goes back to a little bit what we talked about last week, that sometimes the wicked people prosper. But what I tried to show you in the end of all of that is that we all are people who have been wicked before God, and we all needed his salvation and his grace. But Solomon is also hopeful for those who begin to live a godly life. In chapter 8, verse 12, he says, We may not always see it, but I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Now, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon typically will tell you the things that he saw, that he observed in the world. But here he actually changes that verb from saw to know. It's something that he sees and he experiences, not just looking at, but he knows this thing. It's, an, it's not just an observation. This is an answer of his faith and his trust in who God is. He believes what he cannot see, that one day, even though he may not see it now, one day people's lives will come together under the grace and the goodness of God because they love and they fear him correctly. And when the Bible again talks about the fear of God, it does not mean simply just being afraid of God. I mean, there could be a little bit of that because God is so big and so majestic, right? But it's this deeper sense of awe and reverence. Uh, Michael Eaton calls the fear of God the awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. And so Solomon's words are meant to bring us to this understanding and realization of God's greatness. And when that happens, it's going to bring us to realization of God's nearness as well. Those who fear God are said to fear before him. That means they know they are in his presence. And a lot of people, including Christians, never really think and understand that. That we are always in the presence of God no matter where we are. You're driving down the freeway. Somebody pulls in front of you and slows down. You're like, ah, curses you, and you use your injustice button. Honk, honk, right? And you're like, how dare you do that, right? Even in that moment, you are in the presence of God. Do you realize that? 
You go to Costco, and you're getting ready to check out, and the line's really long, and the person in front of you pulls out their checkbook. And the lady says, and the lady says oh, I, I, can you hand me that check? I'll run through that. Oh, no, no, I'm going to write it out. Okay, so they write it out, and then they open up their check register in the back because they just don't buy duplicates. And, they're, oh, and you're like, oh, even in that moment of your frustration, you're in the presence of God. Do you realize that? That every moment, wherever we go, we're in the presence of God. You go, to a, you go to a restaurant, someone turns on country music, you're still in the presence of God, even, even in the midst of that. See, this is the idea of understanding that, that God is there with us no matter where we are. And this proper fear and understanding knows that God is always near, not to smite us, but to love us and bring us back to Him. He is with us when we are in bed at night. He's in, with us when we're worrying about tomorrow. He's with us when we have a sudden emergency we don't understand. He's with us in every conversation. And to live a life that understands really the proper fear of God, a God-fearing life, is this constant awareness that He is always with us and we're always in the presence of God. He is closer than we could ever dream. So what does this bring? So Solomon says, you know, with all this in mind, what, what now happens? How do we begin to live? And he says this, and I commend joy. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What do you do when the wicked prosper? What do you do when you don't know the end of a thing when something comes into your life? He says, I commend joy. Joy is so much deeper than happiness, and it's what he recommends. Sometimes things don't go your way. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the good guy loses. Sometimes the wicked people get all the blessing, and the good guy is shouted down or arrested. Do we get depressed? Do we get self-focused? Do we throw our hands up and say, I give up? No. Solomon says, even in the midst of that, you have a deep abiding joy of who God is and what he leads you into. And so I recommend joy. He says this, I commend joy, but my life stinks in my estimation where I'm at right now. If that's true, you better squeeze some fun in. Okay, you better, if you, if you like uh, live in your prairie dog city with your cubicles and your fabric walls and all that, you better go out, out and enjoy some of the stuff that God has made around you. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat. What a great verse, Right? <laughs> I recommend that for all of you. Go and eat something you like, okay? If you like vegetables, go for it. I won't. Uh, if you, if you want to have a bowl of ice cream because you like ice cream, have a bowl. Not the carton, but have a bowl of ice cream. If you are a guy or a girl and you like to barbecue barbecue. Go out and make some food and go for it. You have the glorious trinity of meat and beer and fire. And if you eat too much, you're like, oh, my stomach is just too big. Take your pants off, sit in your favorite chair. Just do it. You're, you're allowed to be able to do that. And if you're like, oh, I don't want to do that, well, get an elastic waistband and just fill it up. You know, you go for it. Why? Why are you able to do that? Because Solomon says our faith is not in institutions of men. It's in the living God who is in control of everything, and that's why we can. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink. What do you like? I always say anything but light beer. Go for it, right? Let me be careful in what I say when I talk about this because people always misunderstand what I say. And it's always sad that i got to do a disclaimer before I talk about this stuff as much as I do. The truth is we live in a world that is sick and doesn't know how to deal with things that God has given that is good. In the context of Near East culture where Solomon's words would have been written in, these words would have been understood to be about alcohol. Now he's not saying go out and get bombed out of your mind when your friend's got to haul you home and put you in the shower and hose you down when you get there. But for some 
some reason, our minds always tend to want to go there. We always want to go to the worst-case scenario about alcohol. Everything God has made has been given to us as a gift. We are the people who are turned fruit into gluttony, and we will turn alcohol into drunkenness, and sexuality into lust and pornography, and money into arrogance and pride. But we must understand everything that God has given is good, and yet we are the ones who have abused it. I told you before, in the scriptures, 214 times, wine is called a gift from God. In the scriptures, alcohol used, is used in celebration, in worship, and marital intimacy. Is it okay to drink? Yes. Should you get drunk? No. Should you be a drunkard? Never. Never. But what you read in the scriptures is that if you drink, you're not offending God. You're not offending God. Now, when the scriptures, what we can do is we see that we can have people who abstain from drinking, but they don't look at people who drink and judge them. And you have people who drink and they don't look at people who abstain and judge them. It's that we can all come together under the banner of Christ because we don't worship alcohol. We worship Jesus. This is the point, okay? So Solomon says, and drink. That would be something you actually like. So I don't like coffee, so it would never be coffee. But Jesus made wine, and it was good wine. He goes to the master of the feast. He's like, it was the best wine I ever tasted, so it's good wine. I take that to mean, if you're going to drink, make it something good. Okay, make it something good. I don't think you can afford to be an alcoholic if you only buy good stuff. Uh, That means that you should never uh, buy something that comes in a box with its own tap (laughs) or named after a bird, okay? (laughs) You watch some of these auctions, and it's like, Thousands and thousands of dollars for these bottles of wine. That I thought I saw one was like five hundred thousand dollars for a bottle of wine, and I'm thinking you're never going to be an alcoholic at five hundred thousand dollars for a bottle of wine. It's not going to happen. Um, when I was writing this message about eight months ago, my wife and I were in Costco, and she found this bottle of wine that she liked, and she goes, "I should get it. It's like sixty bucks." And I said, "Get it because you're not drinking more than one of those with your friends." You know, <laughs> I have been to weddings where certain pastors have exerted such influence over a couple they couldn't even toast with a glass of champagne. And I worry about legalistic people because legalism does not equal joy. It does not equal salvation. Legalism equals misery. He says, eat and drink. Good food, something you like to drink. Whether it be Coke or Pepsi or beer or wine or gin or juice or both or spring water, we're to enjoy what God has given to the glory of God. Eat, drink, and be joyful. Why? Because we have a proper fear of who God is. So we learn to laugh a little as we go about the serious business of food, drink, and joy. We rest knowing that God is awesome, that God is in control. He holds all things in his hands. Yes, sometimes the wicked prosper. This is true. But we do not need to fret because God holds all things in his hands. And God can change hearts. And when he does, it will be amazing and we'll worship him for it. He says, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. In the NIV, he says it like this. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. I think this is the idea that part of our jobs as people who love Jesus is to show people what the joy of the Lord is actually like. What it can actually look like as we live it out in the world around us. And I think Psalm is trying to get us to understand this. And so he keeps moving on to a couple other things. Uh, Verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one eye see sleep. I think in context of where he's going so far, this is the idea. If you don't take a day off, you don't laugh, you don't enjoy life, you're never going to comprehend that God, who is the one in control, and we don't have to be. God is working even when we are not. If you don't understand that with a proper fear of God, we're going to lie awake in our beds fretting at night, fearing the future, rather than properly fearing the one who actually holds the future in his hands. 
Some people will keep working and working like crazy people, trying to get it all figured out, only to watch it fall apart in front of you. And I'm going to make a statement right now, and this is not a statement of judgment, because this is a statement about me as well. This is where I land. See if it fits you. People who don't take time off, who don't learn how to rest and enjoy the things that God has given them, don't really live in faith and trust of who God is. They don't understand the real fear of what it means to live in the fear of God. Like some people have this deep discontent in their spirit where they think that God's work grinds to a halt if they grind to a halt. And as I said, I am guilty of this as well. Solomon has so much wisdom here. And he says, when it's time to work, you work. And when it's time to play, you play. And when it's time to eat, you eat. And if you don't, you're going to lie awake at night trying to think how you can do God's job. And you will never be able to because you're not him. You're only human. Verse 17, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In Hebrew, this phrase means he cannot comprehend. You're always trying to figure out what God is doing all the time, and you're never going to be able to understand all that he does. We're never going to fully get it. And Solomon says, that's okay, because we don't have to be in control of everything. When we love God back because he first loved us, when we live with him and go into the work that he calls us to in the world, all that's left in the end is to trust God. Eat your dinner, laugh, and ultimately God will be the one who brings all things to their ultimate conclusion. Kind of in the sense God gets the last laugh in everything. And I thought it'd be cool to have a little Ecclesiastes element catechism. It'd be really easy for you. You just got to remember one word. I'm going to ask you a question. You're just going to respond back to me. Catechisms work like that. I say something, you respond back. So these are my two things. You'd say, is God at work all the time in your life on the earth? And your answer is? And I'll say, do you always know what he's doing? And the answer is? So let's try that, right? Because that was really weak, all right? <laughs> is God at work in your life all the times on this earth? Yes. Do you always know what he's doing? No. no, no. What's God doing in Santa Maria right now? Some things we know, some things we don't. Some things we'll never see this, this side of heaven. This means we go where he calls us to. We work hard in the things, not because working hard makes him love us more, because he's first loved us. We worship him in all things. And then when there's time and you have a place, you, you barbecue and enjoy and eat and enjoy the things he's given. The Bible is constantly reminding us that we should trust God in everything, that we don't always know what he's up to. Some people, they're like, I will only follow God if God tells me everything that he is doing. First off, he doesn't need to tell you. (laughs) Secondly, you may not even understood if he did. Uh, In this Old Testament book called Habakkuk, God goes to Habakkuk and says, this is what I'm going to do. And Habakkuk's like, what? Right? He doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. Guys, we trust that God is at work, though we don't always understand. Throughout the course of history, people are constantly messing things up. And guess what? We're still here. We are still here. We don't have to worry or have stress or anxiety. Not that there aren't places where you have stress and anxiety about it. But when we understand the proper fear of God, we can come to a place where we understand we don't need to get worked up about everything in our lives. We can begin to calm down a little bit. And that we begin to work in a way where we honor God because we're simply loving Him back because He first loved us. We understand that our faith is not in our ability and how well we do something. Our faith is not in our organization, who you work for, or how put together your life is. Your faith is not in the things that you produce and how much you can make. Your faith is not in your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your boss, your job. Our faith is in God, and He is sovereign, and He stands over all things and holds everything in His capable hands. And this whole idea of the fear of God is an important theme in the Bible, but especially in Ecclesiastes. And he starts to move towards the end of the book. He keeps coming back to these ideas. I mean, Solomon so far in Ecclesiastes 3.14 has told us that we fear God because he's sovereign over the times and the seasons. In Ecclesiastes 5, he says, have some fear, some awe and reverence of God when you go to the house of God so you worship him in the right way. Don't take him too lightly. 
In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, he will say that fearing God leads to actually walking in God's ways. And here reinforces the proper fear of God, whether we see it or not, will in the end bring about rest and security and hope for us in the days to come. Now, if you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 23. And I want to show you how these two different fears are kind of played out with Jesus on the cross. In Luke 23, uh, Jesus is dying on the cross. He's, he's hanging there between two thieves. So he's there, and there's two thieves that are crucified right along with him. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, he's going to die for what separates us from God and from one another. And you see these fears played out. Luke 23, verse 39 says this. One of the criminals who were hanged, being crucified, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So one of them, out of fear, becomes very self-centered. He looks at himself, and he starts to mock and rail at Jesus. Verse 40, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sense of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So the second one, you see, comes to a place where there is some fear in his life, but it leads him to a place that he's going to trust Jesus as a proper view of God. Verse 42, And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He demonstrates what proper fear of God actually leads to in our lives. He asked the crucified Christ to be his Savior. And this is the way for anyone who to begin living in the proper fear of God lives. We ask Jesus to save us. Philip Ryken writes this, It is for this reason and for this reason alone that all will be well for the man, the woman, or the child who fears God. It is only because Jesus died for our sins on the cross. See, that, that same understanding of this great fear and, and awe and the majesty of God that leads us to our eternal life also then will begin to help us find enjoyment here and now. That's kind of what Solomon's saying. Now Solomon walks through Ecclesiastes, he does all that philosophical stuff, but he keeps, again, coming back to this idea of joy. In Ecclesiastes 2.24, he says he finds nothing better than joy. In 5.18, he says he had seen joy. But now he says, now I want you to live in it. I want you to experience it. But it comes from having a proper view of who God is first. The word he uses when he says, I commend joy, is this Hebrew word called Shabbat, and it means praise. It means praise. I think without the saving personal knowledge of Jesus, it is really hard for us to have any true joy at all in our lives because one day we are going to die. He's going to talk about this next week, actually. And one day we will all die. And unless we know Jesus, we'll live in this fearful expectation of what's going to come next. What's going to come is when we love Jesus, we don't have to fear anything like that. Because we have a proper fear of who God is. And we live honoring and respecting and loving him and his saving grace and his power. Years ago, uh, the humanist Maganita Lasky uh, was brutally honest about her view of the world without God. And this is what she says. We are lonely, we are guilty, and we are going to die. Contrast that with where Solomon gets to. That's kind of where Solomon started the book, right? He wants us to get to this place of like, oh man, everything's too, oh, without God. And now he's moving to a place of with God, with proper fear of who he is, you have this deep joy. So he's kind of moving us towards this direction. Now, all the way back in 1685, uh, there was this guy named Louis de Morellier, and he was a French Protestant who was, who was arrested, and he suffered inhumane treatment for years because of his faith in who Jesus is. Like he, uh, get, at one point, he was thrown from dungeon to dungeon, got put as a galley slave on this ship. And, and the soldiers on the ship would be like, oh, you know, if Jesus was real or God really loved you, you wouldn't be a slave. This wouldn't have happened to you. And he says that he never really feared his captors or despaired. And don't get me wrong, there were times in his life where he was thrown to a dungeon that, dungeon that was pitch black and he was alone and he was, felt that kind of thing. But he through it all said that God was his dearest and truest friend. 
Listen to these words that he's wrote. This is what he says. I am persuaded that all states and conditions in which it shall please him to put me are those states in which he judges I shall glorify him better than an infant number of others which he might allot me. So what he does is he prays for the grace with God to continue to be faithful unto death. And when you read his writings, he will tell you that this is what the true fear of God brings. Not a, not a fear that God's going to squish you, but it's this awe and reverence of what God did to rescue and save us of his majesty and his goodness and grace. It is not a scared, self-centered fear. It's an understanding of the majesty that God that stretches beyond our circumstance, that encompasses all things. And I think and hope and pray this would be the testimony of everyone who says that they believe in Jesus, that we understand this great grace that we receive that comes from the cross and the empty tomb. And through all of this, you you have really hard times. You have times when you are able to eat and drink and live in joy. But all those things, we are only able to ever live in the joy that God provides because we have a proper view of who he is as revealed himself to us. And so we live in that proper fear of who he is. And I think and understand this, we take heart in all things because God is near. He is near. One writer says it like this, and it shall be well because the God of justice and mercy will save us. I mean, that's the beauty that God has promised rescue. God has promised redemption. God has promised to rescue us. And he has fulfilled all the things that he has said. And when we understand, I mean, you've got to think, God who holds the entire universe in his hands, I think if we ever got a proper view of that, we'd be undone. We, we would be a little scared because of his majesty. But then understanding that even with all of that, he has deemed to seek us out and to love us and to draw us to himself, I mean, that is completely different. And yes, a proper fear of God does understand his largesse how big he is, how good he is. But a part fear of God also leads us to that awe and respect and understanding of his grace and how he brings us back to himself. See, when we come to communion and you take that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you break it and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it represents his blood that was shed for you and me. It's a place that we do this in remembrance of him, in remembrance of what he has done, in remembrance where we stand in awe of his grace that God has promised to rescue us, that God has promised to bring about justice, and he does bring about justice. All of our sins that have been committed before God, God doesn't wink and just act like they weren't there. Justice was meted out onto Jesus at the cross. That's what we remember at communion. That yes, God is holy and righteous and good, and we are forgiven on the basis of his justice. But his justice comes about because of his mercy and his grace. And these are the things that we need to understand about God's goodness and God's call in our lives and bringing us back to himself. So today I'm going to invite you to communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. If you need prayer, they'd love to pray with you. The band's going to come up. As they do, as I said, there's going to be communion. If you need prayer, maybe you're in a place today where you have viewed God as a ogre or God's running around with this gigantic cosmic fly swatter and waiting for you to step out of line and go, whack, I told you not to do that. But, you know, and you, and you have this idea that, that God doesn't have a whole lot of grace involved in who he is, but God is just a God of judgment. Well, we understand that God is a God of judgment. God brought about judgment for our sin, but he took that judgment upon himself, and we get grace and hope and life again. Everything that Jesus took upon himself, God doesn't admit that as, out to us as well. He took it on himself, so God is a God of justice, but God is also a God of mercy, compassion, and love, and grace, and that gets extended to us by what Christ has done. 
And so we get to be a people who then begin to live out in true joy because of a proper view of who God is and what he has done. We don't work off our salvation. We don't work in ways to make God love us. We live in certain ways in our lives because God has already first loved us. And if you don't understand that and you want someone to pray with you, they would love to pray with you. Maybe you're in a place where you have a lot of fear, not of God, but of other people, and it's overwhelming you. And you would like someone to pray with you about that. They'd love to pray with you about that. Uh, there's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. It's a response to what God has done. We do not pass a plate. You don't have to fear about everyone else looking at you as a plate goes by. You're like, eh, you know. Uh, there's uh, some snacks outside. I invite you to, to grab some snacks, take some sermon notes this week, and maybe talk to some other people about, you know, maybe what things in your life have controlled you by fear before and what places or maybe you've been set free from and what does a proper fear of God look like in your own life? Or do you even understand when I say the proper fear of God what that looks like? And maybe you can walk through those things together and begin to have a deeper understanding of God's grace and His goodness, of His calling, and how we as a people can be those who begin to live in true and real, restored, heavenly joy. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as a people and remind us of who you are in all things. So often, Father, we get our our minds and our hearts off of you, and we get so self-focused on who we are. And you take and gently lead us back to you. I ask that you'd have us understand what it means to have a proper understanding of when the scriptures speak about the fear of the Lord. That we would be those who live out the proper understanding of that so that people around us would know that this, this fear that we talk about is not a fear of being hurt, but it's, a, it's an awe of our rescue. And that we would then, in turn, begin to live out in ways that reflect who you are to the world around us. That everything that we do would come back to our deep understanding of the revelation that you are in our lives, that our eyes would move off of ourselves and onto you and your grace. Father, thank you for your amazing grace and your amazing rescue of who we are. And I ask that you would teach us not to become, again, self-focused, but look beyond our lives and that we begin to love those around us because you first loved us and we begin to live in this deep, abiding joy of your grace that has been given to us because we properly understand who you are first in all things. That in the end, everything we do becomes a response to what you have done to rescue and save us. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.